Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. I sound a little hesitant at that <laughs> intro there. It's because, uh, you know, we always try to have our introduction be fresh and not be rehearsed, uh, but suddenly there's a prop on the table. It wasn't here, and now I feel as though it's like a magic trick. I'm not sure what's happening. Okay, so this week you answered a Duanna Names letter about um, someone or from someone who needed your help naming a plant. Oh, yeah. That was super fun because… It was a great, a great article. I mean, yes, it was, if I say so myself. Uh, all credit to the letter writer who wanted to protect the privacy of her plants, uh-huh. uh, but sent me a picture. Uh, but she felt that because they were kind of spiky, it reminded her of a boy band. So that's kind of where we went. So I know that some people read it and were like, holy fuck, what is this? You're naming a plant. And there are people out there, I'm sure, who rolled their eyes at that. And then there are people like me who I, if you recall, had an orchid. Yasik and I had an orchid for yeah, many you did. years. That's right. Yasik kept it alive for a long time. Like, orchids are hard. Is it not? Has it? Well, like, the orchid went through quite a few lives. I mean, we're so out of my depth here, but they do, right? They go dormant, and then they come back, and then they resurrect themselves. So the orchid, and I've told this story before, but the orchid was dormant for a long time. Then our dog Marcus died in September of 2015, and 10 days after Marcus died, I came downstairs And lo and behold, the orchid had sprouted like an itty-bitty arm. Right. And I said to Yasik, of course, we were so, like, we were in such grief, right? Like, we were, I mean, those of you who've lost a pet, you understand. We were so heartbroken. And I looked at this orchid. I remember the day. And I, like, squealed. And I said to him, Marcus came back in the orchid. And so the orchid was called Marcus Mm -hmm. until… Um, in 2018, like in the summer, we finally decided that Marcus was done. He hadn't come back for like, you know, he had two blooms after that. Marcus the Orchid. That's right. Look, with no no maligning of your beautiful story, I'm not sure about like, I don't know if I've ever thought of an orchid as male. Okay, go on. Yeah. So we decided to say goodbye to the orchid. Mm-hmm. And then I was lucky enough to get a few promotional copies of Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Mm-hmm. And in one of the promotional mail, like, sends that they did, yeah. they sent this cube and, it, you know, because of her learning garden and, like, the garden that she planted at the White House, they were encouraging readers to grow things. Right. I can't grow shit. <laughs> Except this thing is so easy. It's a wooden cube. It's about the size of like… A Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Like a pencil sharpener on your desk. It's like maybe a little bit bigger than a Rubik's Cube. In the center is some dirt and you basically rip off the ceiling sticker. You pour in some water 
And within 10 days, a little guy starts to sprout. Right. And then it's like within 10 weeks, it's supposed to bloom. I'm right now at six weeks. Mm-hmm. And every day I come downstairs, I talk to it, I have a calendar, I like mark down my watering schedule. I am completely devoted to this cube. Like I, in a way that I've never been devoted to growing anything except for Marcus the Orchid. Well, let's be clear here. You, it's not just a cube. There is a sprout. There is a little plant. What's it, what kind of a plant is it supposed to grow to be? Oh, wow. Okay. I know. All right. And so anyway… To like finish off the idea because this is what these things do. After about a year, you're supposed to plant this in a pot Mm -hmm. and the wooden box will disintegrate and become fertilizer or nutrients Mm -hmm. and you can go and plant it in your backyard. That's lovely. I know. So I need a name for my plant. So to be clear here, uh, because, you know, it's a visual medium and all that. Uh, what we have is like a little… Teen- we'll put it on Instagram story. Yeah, it's a little teeny tiny green baby Groot. He's skinny. He's skinny. He looks like Groot. Like it's, He does. It's very much the imagery of teeny tiny baby Groot yeah. growing and the arms are yeah. out for balance. But he's very symmetrical. Yeah. Oh, no. Very symmetrical, for sure. So the thing about it is that… When you have such a little tiny guy, that's when I feel like you want a big name, you know, but you still want something that you can kind of croon at your plant. My mother uh, was one of those women who, you know, you talk about like Korean mothers. We laughed about Sandra Oh's mother not being super effusive last week. Um, That's my mom. Even though she's Irish, it's the same brand. But her plants, she crooned, she sweet-talked, she loved them. Um, That makes sense to me. So you need something that you can kind of (laughs) croon. Okay. (laughs) I do talk to it every day. I believe you. I, my first instinct, I mean, you're going to scoff at everything and I'm doing this off the top of my head, but my first instinct is something like uh, Norbert. Or even something like Abraham, because he's so little. You want a big name. Abe. Hi. Hi, little Abe. I like Abe. I like Abe. You know? Abraham. Yeah. Abraham the plant, and it gives big aspirations for the little guy to grow up to. Um, Like, guys, right now, my pinky finger is Hagrid to this little plant. Like, could intimidate and crush. He's teeny. He is teeny. Like, and again, but… I swear to God, every day I come home and he gets bigger. He's literally like a puppy. That's what plants do. They grow. (laughs) Abraham, Abe. That's it. He's Abe. Abe the plant. See, I was waiting for you to come over to christen him. And then I read your column today and I was like, well, Jesus, this is perfect. Duanna has to name my little guy. If you don't read the names column, and I would not expect that everybody who listens to this does, I just want to say I was pitching for this woman to name her plants Cleopatra and Joel. Um, That's where I landed up, so I don't know yet where she has uh, surmised, but uh, I feel really good about it. While showing off your extensive knowledge of teen bands and boy bands and girl bands. Well, I mean, she opened the door. Um, Yeah. You did, you, like, I mean, you gave up some deep cuts there. Deep, 
Deep Cuts. Well, because I used to, I worked on a teen-focused music show in the late 90s and early 2000s. I was an intern when I was 17, 18 years old. There was nothing else in my brain. All I had was the difference between five, spelled five, I-V-E, take five, and take that. Like, there are places where the algebra should be but that's what's there instead. It's amazing how those things come back and reward you, like in the most random ways. Now, before we continue on with our podcast, I just want to move Abe back to his spot because like we have alcohol at the table and I just, I think that he's way more comfortable. Like, Have you ever heard her voice (laughs) this soft and gentle when she's talking to me? (laughs) Or anyone? <laughs> no, only for Abe. Okay, I'm let's just gonna, pause for Abe. You know Abe what I mean, right? Like plants like to be. Yeah, my support understanding, him underneath, please. Uh, plants like to be like you know they don't like a lot of change. So I'm just gonna move Abe. Okay, so our podcast this week. Thank you all for your letters, your messages on Twitter about R. Kelly and when we were going to address Surviving R. Kelly, the docuseries on Lifetime. Um, And as I wrote in a note last week uh, in the what else section, I personally just needed time to process. I know that there were a lot of immediate reactions and all of those takes are valid. I linked to several of them. For me personally, I just needed to sit with it a little bit and figure out how we could have this conversation um, in a way that is respectful and in a way that adds hopefully something to the conversation. Well, that's, I think, the biggest point, right? There are a lot of people talking about it. Surviving R. Kelly, of course, was the six-part documentary that was uh, played on Lifetime over three nights, so sort of two episodes per night. And as you say, a lot of people are talking about it, but a lot of those reactions are, wow, holy sh... Who knew? Why didn't they this? How come they that? And yeah, to have a substantive discussion about it, you want to have something new to say. That's right. As I mentioned, I linked to a few pieces already. One of them was Angelica Jade Bastien's uh, piece. And that one really stayed with me because, you know, right now there's a lot of anger. There's disgust, sadness. They're all... There are a lot of people going like, when is Jay-Z going to say something? When is Lady Gaga going to say sorry? She has. She's released a statement. When are all these people going to say sorry? And those are important questions, but do they solve anything? And more importantly, do they prevent anything? I think that one of the goals of the people who are trying to expose this and trying to actually like, you know, throw this wide open, Dream Hamptons goal is to, you know, obviously right wrongs and to get the survivors, I I don't know if the word is closure, I don't know if the word is respect, I don't know what, some healing, but also to make sure that this doesn't happen again anymore with any more potential victims of R. Kelly or other people who would do this to other people. Well, I think that is the most important thing. When we are talking about that particular man and his particular crimes, you know, there's a spotlight on it now where for a long time, for decades, there's been kind of willful silence or people ignored some of the signs or whatever. 
nobody's here to litigate that. And there isn't, I don't think, a lot of benefit to saying, why did this happen in 1997 or why didn't X happen in 2005? Although some of that is still relevant today and we'll get there. What I think this is for is, as you say, for identification, for familiarity with those grooming processes, with how this happens, with how something that looks uh, unorthodox but above board can be identified as, no, this is nefarious, right? This is why people talk all the time about true crime. This is why people talk about those kinds of stories because it helps you to know uh, what's going to happen next time. There was an episode of This American Life a few months ago that was discussing the processes that are enacted in schools, what you can learn after school shootings. You can't fix any of those situations. What they are for is to say, what can we learn? What can we take? So I think it's in that spirit that we're talking about this now. And I think, as far as I know, that it's in that spirit that the documentary series was made. And it's in that spirit that Angelica, for her piece in Vulture, like respectfully criticized the documentary series on Lifetime. Because as she said, and I'm paraphrasing, yes, there was one layer and level of interrogation. How could this happen? You were there. And then there's a much bigger layer and level of interrogation about the institutionalized and systemic problems that have always been in place both in the music industry and also in the black community that led to a series of circumstances that enabled this man to do all the things that he did, commit the crimes that he committed. And she felt that the docu-series did not push those buttons, did not ask those questions, did not say, how did we collectively fail these young women? Beyond the broader fact that society continually fails young black women, we all have collectively been a part of that. And then within the black community, which, and I won't speak for you, Duanna, I'll speak for me, I don't know if I have a place talking about, right? As someone who's not a member of the black community, there are conversations happening within the community right now after the airing of the docu-series that is, you know, having having a lot of a lot of these members come together and be like, um, what can we do? Where did we go wrong? How do we rebuild? Yeah. And I think of course, no, I'm not going to speak on behalf of, oh yeah, I can speak to those issues or those conversations. I think it's incredibly generous that some of those conversations are happening in public, on Twitter, in other social media forums so that others of us can learn, can process. But let's be super clear that the systemic grooming and manipulation and control Mm -hmm. of a number of young and not so young women in R. Kelly's thrall, that is not a uniquely black situation or cultural position, nor is it like that crosses all kinds of lines. So the parts of this conversation that are about that are, you're absolutely right, they're not for us to discuss, but part of the reason, and Mm -hmm. we'll get into this, that this was 
an event for everybody is because this is a an example of yeah. something, but it has absolutely got universal ramifications. Oh, you're totally right. It happens in any community, no matter the racial background. I think the added layer of complication here is, as we've seen, when this happens within the Black community, it becomes identified as commonly like the entire community has to wear it, right? And we see that throughout history. Like, one white dude w- does one thing and, you know, all white people don't have to pay for it. And a black person does something and it almost is taken as a character flaw against an entire race. And there's that added level of complication that, you know, many members of the black community are struggling with. Like, this is the, they're, they're fighting fights on so many fronts and it's unfair in so many ways. Right. And the reason, though, that we're talking about that here today is because there is a Venn diagram overlap that we do speak to quite a bit and quite a lot, and that is the murky waters of the entertainment world. Mm -hmm. The worlds in which uh, all of the other uh, cultural reasons that have to kind of talk up for any one thing to happen are then kind of multiplied and distorted and expanded by the rules of the entertainment world, which, mm-hmm. as we all well know, have been astoundingly lax yeah. in across the board and maybe in specific situations, as we'll get into. Yeah. So Vanity Fair published an article written by… It was written by Sonia Saraya. I hope that's the correct pronunciation. And it was published on January 7th. So just after the doc had finished. And, you know, it it starts off with the line, Surviving R. Kelly, which aired in its entirety from Thursday to Saturday on Lifetime, is a genre piece, which is a real interesting opening line. And basically what the piece opines, what Soraya opines, is that the part of the way that the documentary was received has to be seen through, we talked about all the filters, right? The filter of, is this an an issue within the black community? Is this an issue within the entertainment community? And then Soraya argues that the doc itself was presented through a lifetime filter, which is to say a largely uh, theatrical reality TV-esque kind of filter with kind of uh, music cues that are designed to undermine or give you a jump scare or pull the heartstrings, that it was produced technically in a television production way, that it was produced in the same way as a, you know, a a bachelor or a, a real housewives or, you know, something that is and a lifetime original. Yeah. And we'll get to all the reasons why I raise an eyebrow at that in particular, but that is sort of the philosophy here. Yeah. The the question, the overall big question that the piece asks is whether or not surviving R. Kelly should have been on Lifetime and gotten that kind of treatment, Duanna, that you just described. Right. Now, when you sent this over to me as a possible thing to include on our podcast, you included the question or you included the statement, I don't think I agree. Yeah, that's right. And that intrigued me 
because having read it myself, I don't know if I agree either. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to be clear, and this is this may or may not impact our discussion, but Jim Derogatis is the Chicago journalist, or he he used to write for the Chicago Sun-Times. He's the one motivated, determined, intrepid journalist who began this investigation almost 20 years ago, and for many years, almost two decades, was the only journalist who seemed to care about this story. He was the one who was getting anonymous tips from people in the Chicago community about the tapes and about... um, all of these crimes, and he has been following this, and he's been appealing, like shouting into the void for people to pay attention. He is doing his own documentary that was built out of his BuzzFeed piece that was published in 2017. And when and where is that documentary happening? We don't really have too many details about this documentary, but Dream Hampton produced this docuseries, six episodes, as we know, on Lifetime. There are people who are also waiting for the Jim DeRogatis piece. And so... I wonder whether or not this Vanity Fair article is like, this should have been a straight documentary style, the kind that's like nominated for Oscars, you know, um, treatment, to mm-hmm. use like a technical TV production word. Yeah, like a like a, a documentary feature, for example. That's right. As opposed to the style of what Lifetime produced. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so we have that out there. That's a thesis, right? And so I read that in the Vanity Fair article. And, you know, I understand the philosophy behind that. Yeah, have this be treated with the seriousness that it deserves, have it gain the attention that it would, even if it were, say, a prestige documentary on Netflix, right? Think about the buzz that has surrounded Making a Murderer or The Keepers, that are, well, this brought so much light to this previously unknown issue and now people care and then people get appeals and things happen, right? Mm -hmm. But we go back to a point that you made earlier, which is that the people who are front and center in this story, who are black girls and women, are often not seen as people whose stories are universal right? Mm -hmm. That's a thing that is heard all the time. I'm going to get real bold here. I know nothing about the production of Surviving R. Kelly. I don't know what Dream Hampton's process was or any of the other producers. You think they didn't shop this to everyone in town? You think they don't go knocking from door to door? Do you think they didn't call CNN and say, get Mm -hmm. Ronan Farrow on this? Yeah. And they said, oh, well, maybe, but we don't have time till the fall or we blah, blah, or we whatever. Yeah. Do you think that they didn't call Netflix who said, well, you know, in order to do this, we need 10 episodes. That's the best for our algorithm or whatever it is. Like, to be clear, all of these things I'm saying are my hyperbole. Yeah. They're not, uh, I don't know them to be fact, but nobody picks out just one place. Yes. And says, I just want to take it here. If you're trying to say something, especially if it's something that is something that you feel is essential for people to know, you go to the loudest voice who will listen, Mm -hmm. right? That's right. And I don't know if you saw, but there were several threads on Twitter, um, you know, during the airing of Surviving R. Kelly and afterwards about whether or not this should have been on BET. Mm Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people who were commenting about whether or not BET was actually complicit. 
BET supported R. Kelly through many years of his career. Uh, BET hasn't really done much throughout these allegations. I mean, it's been years and years, like decades. And so would that have been a good home for it, right? So on the one hand, to your point, Duanna, you have likely we are using our knowledge of how TV pitches and like things get made. We're using that knowledge to make this assumption. Mm -hmm. Dream Hampton would have pitched this around town everywhere. Absolutely. She would have been rejected in many, many places. How it ended up at Lifetime is another story we don't know yet, but you and I can pretty much guarantee that if she pitched it to 10 outfits, lots of them, a majority of them would have said no thank you. Well, and look, that's the case for things even that are not this controversial. That's the case for scripted television starring, like, major names. Yeah. Unless you're walking in the door with Dr. Cop Lawyer, which is the joke for, you know, procedural TV shows that are anonymous, whatever. And even then, it is standard to go to many places before you find somebody who says, yes, we have the interest we have the resources to yeah. put behind this right now. We have the enthusiasm for somebody to shepherd it through. Yeah. Right? Yep. So that is absolutely standard for anything that you're pitching. That yeah. goes double or triple for a feature, for a yeah. documentary feature uh, that, you know, yeah, that wins an Oscar two years from now or whatever it is. Yeah. Right? So that's step one. That's reason number one why… Lifetime is the place where it is. And before we get to a discussion of Lifetime, I also want to point out that it's also about who can do this now. As you pointed out, Jim DeRogatis has been on this topic for 20 plus years. And in that time, it's not like it's a 20 plus year old story. Like in that time, these crimes have continued to happen. New crimes have continued. New crimes crimes have unfolded. A lot of people's touchstone for the R. Kelly story is Aaliyah. And that it sort of raised an eyebrow that they were secretly married. But this was happening before Aaliyah, far after. And as far as we know, and according to the doc, is continuing even as we speak. There are still women and young women who are trapped in this situation as we speak. With this predator. That's right. So it becomes a question of why wait? Like, do we do… Urgency is the word you're looking for. The urgency is exactly right. Like, do we do as much as we can right now to help save those people? And at that point, does awareness and getting this message out trump, like, cinema and… Making something that is art? Yes, of course it does. This is about news. This is about awareness, right? Yeah. So now we come to a point where you said that BET, you know, was not a a player here. They definitely didn't broadcast it. Well, we don't it. know. We like, don't know. It could, could have, they, like, Dreamhampton could have gone to them, but the fact is that BET did not carry this docuseries. Right. So we we don't know whether BET was interested, didn't have the timeline, uh, whether they, you know, had wanted some parts taken out and then they would have gone ahead with it. But ultimately, this was not where it aired. 
here's the thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's possible that BET has disassociated from what BET used to stand for, right? Which is Black Entertainment Television. Is that still the… Well, it's the, no longer Black-owned. No, it's not. Yeah. But is it still branded as underneath the BET, Black Entertainment Television? Well, let's see. It says, BET.com is your home for the latest celebrity, music, fashion, entertainment, and African-American news. Right. So once again, airing this on BET would imply that this is an issue and a story that is exclusive to black people. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't think that's the case. I want to take nothing away from the victims. I want to take nothing away from the cultural elements that I wouldn't understand. And there are many accusations, as you said, on Twitter and, and surrounding in the confluence of uh, the black community and black entertainment uh, in terms of what is or isn't seen as a red flag. But this is an issue that affects everybody. And so I would imagine that the goal was to have this documentary be seen by everybody. That's right. Right? And Lifetime has arguably a wider range of demographic. Well, now I'm going to stump there a little bit. Yeah. Because here's the thing. Uh, Without being too flippant, I've been complaining on the site recently about uh, the differences between Canadian and American versions of given networks and so forth. So the lifetime schedule that I'm about to read to you may not be exactly what is on the main Lifetime U.S. brand, but I want to give you a sampling of their programming schedule. Uh, Live PD presents Women on Patrol, Escaping Polygamy, uh, Mom's Day Away, Woman on the Run, Dance Moms, My Partner Knows Best, and Married at First Sight and a rerun of Surviving R. Kelly. That's a rough sketch of a day on the Canadian version of Lifetime. What do you notice about all those programs? Okay, so there's like women in the force, right? Women in the force. Married in something. Surviving polygamy. Yeah. Uh, Moms day away. Woman on the run. Women. Dance moms. Women. Yeah. And Lifetime is the punchline of so many jokes It is the situation where people love to joke about, oh, are they going to cry and have international coffee? Is it on Lifetime? Yeah. Another way of looking at Lifetime is, oh, this is the place where they will actually pay attention to the things that trouble women, to the things that bother women, that are specific to women. Surviving polygamy which is a totally different program, but which I imagine has more than a little overlap with Surviving R. Kelly, is a story about powerless women, Mm -hmm. systemically powerless women, who find a way to get out. Lifetime, whatever you think about the music cues and the lighting choices, is actually arguably the place that knows most of all 
how to produce this show. Again, we're talking from a technical point of view, how to style this show to appeal to women watching, especially if the women who watch Lifetime don't already know this story. If for a lot of people, and I think this was the goal of Dream Hampton and Tarana Burke and the other producers, if the goal was to bring awareness of R. Kelly and his crimes to a wide audience that didn't already know, why not go to the place who knows best how to speak to women? With good timing. Because as many people, because as many people have pointed out, this is post Harvey Weinstein. It is post Me Too mainstream. Toronto Burke started, Toronto Burke started Me Too many years ago, but it really went mainstream really, right? Mm -hmm. In Mm -hmm. like near the end of 2017, October 2017, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, or was it 20? Yes, 2017. Yes, Kevin Spacey, Mm -hmm. all of that. 2017. And it really opened up, it really opened up a dialogue and they, they took advantage of that timing. Well, sure. Like, or the door is finally open. That's right. Right? That now people are finally willing to listen. With the urgency. And they were like, where can we get it done? We're going to pitch it. Hey, we've got a green light. Where can we get it done? With quality, but also where we can get it out to air quickly and really, really push this situation now. Once and for all, after 20 years. Right. But also, like to the people that you want to have it speak to. Look, say that this documentary was on uh, AMC. Does it reach the people that you want to reach? We started off talking about how this was not just about condemning and recrimination. This is also about building awareness so that other women and girls protect themselves and their families. Who's your audience? Who are you trying to reach? Women. Yeah. Go where they are. You know, show your work in this endeavor is not just about the struggle of this documentary, but also I think it's an incredibly good move for Lifetime to say, yeah, we are about all women. It's not just about, you know, women in peril on a rock from a from a cheetah, which is a brand of programming that Lifetime movies yeah. sort of are associated with. This is saying, yeah, we want to address the real problems that are facing women in real life because you know that there are people in identical situations where nobody in the situation is a headline name, nobody is well-known, and so their situations are not getting any press. And this is the way that they get to educate themselves and go, oh, this is what it's like. He is manipulating me. Mm -hmm. He is trapping me. It's interesting, too, the same network that in 2014, as pointed out in this Vanity Fair article, like, did, you know, one of their um, biopics or movie of the week Mm -hmm. situations on Aaliyah and did not depict that relationship accurately. Right. Yeah. At that time. At that time, five Mm -hmm. years ago. And now we come back to Lifetime and they're the ones um, with this six-part docuseries that is markedly different. Well, the other thing is that one of the production companies, the production company who actually produced this for Lifetime, uh, there are two listed here, Creative with a K, but more interestingly to me is Bunim Murray Productions. Mm -hmm. Does that mean anything to you? Oh, yeah. So Bunim Murray Productions, for those of you who don't know, they We grew up with Bunim Murray. Absolutely. We all did. 
they made the real world and road rules. And yeah, those shows are largely frivolous entertainment is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is to say they're actually really skilled and really practiced at getting the people to say the real things, right? Yeah. There are so many interviews and they need the people to get to the really uncomfortable statements Mm -hmm. and tell the awful truths. And who better to do that than people who have spent the last 30 years honing how to get that information from people. Yeah. Again, you may think that's a very uh, mercenary way for me to talk about this, but if we're talking about this doc series as a tool to educate and to inform, then you need, pardon me, you need need the the action quotes. You Mm -hmm. need the information that is the real headline, and they know how to find it more than anybody else. Look, the bottom line is, and we will continue on how well it did its job. But the bottom line is that Surviving R. Kelly did its job in the sense that it got everyone talking. It's a major story. It's probably the biggest story of 2019 so far. R. Kelly, R. Kelly, R. Kelly, criminal rapist. Everybody is now suddenly worried, guilty, conflicted, mad, all of those things that Jim DeRogatis was trying to get everybody to feel like 20 years ago. In a way that his own article published in BuzzFeed in 2017, which trended for a few hours that day, which went viral, it still didn't pierce like a certain public consciousness the way this documentary did. Because this documentary is going to reach people who would never click on a BuzzFeed article. That's right. We're living in a world where if people are at divided political polls or whatever, they don't even read the same publications. That's right. But everybody watches The Kardashians, which is also produced by Buna Murray. But everybody finds their way. Why not go to the place where the biggest juggernaut can happen? That's right. And get your message out as loudly as possible. Not just, by the way, so Mm -hmm. that it can be loud and big and big news, the big news of 2019, but because, of course, and it's incredible to me that this happens, but it happens all the time in these kind of infotainment things that we all consume. After they're published, whether it's the doc or the podcast or the whatnot, new people come out with new information. Mm -hmm. Once everybody's talking about it, they remember things or it feels safe to talk about. They literally, these are direct links, these programs. I'm thinking, of course, about serial or true crime podcasts or things like that, that literally have follow-ups because people come out of the woodwork and say, actually, I have new information. That is an additional goal here, which can get to the ultimate goal of getting this guy arrested and behind bars. No, it accomplished its first goal, which is to explode the story in a way that it hasn't been exploded before, right? That before it was newspaper articles, it was then online articles, it was some trending on Twitter. It wasn't to this extent with this magnitude. So that's been accomplished. I think that you and I both agree that doing it on Lifetime in that respect was not a bad decision. No. That said, this is a complicated issue that is more than just 
How can we get him arrested? How can we get more evidence? Throw him in bar, like throw him behind bars. That's it. The end. Right? There are so many like tentacles. There are so many social habits um, around music, around show business, around fame that we've all socially been conditioned to accept that will take more than a lifetime docuseries and an arrest to undo. Well, let's talk a little bit about those because there's Surviving R. Kelly, the documentary. Yeah. And then there's R. Kelly, not just the man, but the entertainment commodity mm-hmm. and the situations around that person and that product that allowed this to happen. So putting aside the documentary that brought this to our mind, yeah. then we come to, I think, as you point out, the thornier issues. Yeah. And there's history behind these thorny issues, right? Like if if we just briefly, very, very briefly just go into like rock and roll playgrounds for lack of a better way of putting it, because even calling it a playground is gross in this context. R. Kelly is not an anomaly. Like he is one of, you could call it a, a, a like a horrible, sick legacy of rock god musician that has preyed on young girls. Okay, so this is from an interview magazine article posted April 2018, recently, the heading of the article is Obvious History, Rock and Roll's Baby Groupies, that's what they're called, Baby Groupies, Lori Lightning and Sable Star. I just want to read a paragraph. Star infamously lost her virginity at age 12 to spirit guitarist Randy California. For a time, she was involved with Iggy Pop, who glorified their relationship in his 1996 song, Look Away. Quote, I slept with Sable when she was 13. Her parents were too rich to do anything. She rocked her way around L.A. till a New York doll carried her away. Um, And then, of course, Lori Maddox, it goes on, the article says, best frenemy to star was deflowered by David Bowie before dating Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. So when people talk about the brazenness of R. Kelly and calling himself the Pied Piper, and basically alluding to, boldly, his pedophilia and rape of young women, he had a model of this behavior. He sang about it or alluded about it in his moniker, his nickname, because many a rock star before his time, they were also singing about it and flaunting it all over the place. Before his time and in his time, the Rolling Stones have tour merch from 1994 that says, we withstand divorce, slander, rip-off, slagging, underage sex is the biggest headline of what they withstand. That was their 1994 poster, keychain, jacket, t-shirt. They're bragging about it, have been celebrating it. Yeah, he was within a culture of people who were like, yeah, this is what we do, and snicker, snicker, ain't it great? And so when we talk about reckoning with R. Kelly, it's not just R. Kelly. We do really have to reckon with his, for lack of a better word, godfathers. Oh, my God. We, like, (laughs) worshipped at the altar of a movie about it. Remember Almost Famous? Yes. Where the glorification of the groupie was, like, cute 
and wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. The Rolling Stones, the, like, uh, there are dozens and dozens. Now, these are people who are revered. Mm-hmm. Now, the... The argument is, yeah, but back then everybody was doing it and it was okay. And well, I, I'm going to sock pop it a little bit yeah. for you and be like, yeah, but Lainey, the difference is they wanted to be there. And the response to that, now I'm going to sock pop at you, is did they though? Like did they, what recourse does a 14-year-old girl have against a wealthy, powerful, strong man? And at what point are we just repeating the arguments that we've had about Bill Cosby, about Harvey Weinstein, about women in hotel rooms? It's the same conversation over and over. And you go, do you really think that these 14-year-old girls, 17-year-old girls had the agency to know what kind of a situation they were in and remove themselves and say no? Or like... In that time, when you're 14, and remember, you've been conditioned and it's been sort of, it's been foisted on us that this is the glamour life. This is the life everyone wants to lead. At what point do you know what you want, right? Like, what is want at that point when you've been told that this is the best thing that could ever happen to you? You don't have a chance to make that decision. It becomes molecular. Well, you can only make a decision when you're exposed to many things and then you choose one. That's true of anything, right? There's no choice to be made if you've only ever been exposed to one thing. If you've only ever been told that this is the way or this is the way out. But these are all, as you just pointed out, these are all the counter arguments, right? But she wanted it to be there, but they wanted to be there. Um, or, but you know, you can't judge now the way you used to judge back then. And to that, I say... Sure. However, what I'll say to that is what back then did was it laid a foundation of behavior, right? You set track. I'm sorry to quote Shonda Rhimes here because like, you know, she would never want that, you know, expression of hers to be used here. But there was a track that you followed as a rock star, as a pop star. Those people laid down an acceptable way to behave that was condoned and encouraged, and not stopped. And so when the system is in place and someone like R. Kelly gets, like, famous enough to be accepted and enters that system, why would he break down the walls? But you're pointing out here the system, and to me, whenever you're sitting around wondering how could this happen, why did this happen, the answer is always has to be you follow the money. Mm-hmm. When you say it's been condoned, it's been enacted, it's been understood and whatnot, what we're talking about is there are maybe people who in the moment see a situation, oh, that doesn't look good, that young woman doesn't look happy, as the whistleblowers have done, uh, you know, for the past 20 years. This is not good, this is not happening. But The people who have the power to stop it and don't are the people who are paying R. Kelly incredible amounts of money because he was a hit maker. He was a hit machine. Yeah. There, uh, you know, there are numerous mentions of the fact that he's referred to as a genius in this documentary. Mm -hmm. And there's always been that thing of, well, if that's what he needs to get it done, if that's what, you know, Harvey Weinstein was a hit maker, 
right? So I guess it's all okay because in the end, he's a hit machine. He's making gobs and gobs of money for people who don't want to shut this down because the money is more important mm-hmm. than the safety of these anonymous people. I mean, look, I will be, I'll admit, I there was a period of, of whatever that summer was. I loved the remix to Ignition. So did everybody because it was played on every radio station you can think of. It was crossover hits. R. Kelly had inspirational tunes in I believe I can fly. Yeah. Like like, that was probably the bigger one. I mean, Ignition is your dance club vibe, but like I believe I can fly was, think about all the graduations that it was played at. Like white and black. But that I think is what the thing is. Not only was R. Kelly a crossover artist in that way, but he grew with you. I believe I can fly was a good five or eight years before Ignition and the remix to Ignition and so forth. He was around. He was in a pop culture establishment. And I just want to belabor this point for a second because this to me is the point that is still hardest for so many people. There are still people who have trouble believing that their favorites could be nefarious because he's so great. He's so funny. To which I have to say out loud, forgive me if this is real elementary, if every person who was a monster looked like a monster, life would be really, really easy. If every person who had really terrible malignant intent also never did anything good with their lives, never contributed to a charity, kicked dogs on the street, Mm -hmm. it would be easy. Mm -hmm. The issue is that you have to look at the people that you admire and say their talent, which is there, which is celebrated, which is pumped all over the world on, yeah, feel-good radio stations and graduation ceremonies, doesn't preclude that they could also be a fundamentally terrible person. Yeah. And that's on the entire entertainment industry. So to untangle this is more than just R. Kelly should go to jail – It's, once again, as we've been doing for I don't know how many years, it's interrogating an entire infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And once again, I say to you, that infrastructure wasn't created five years ago. It wasn't created 10 years ago. It was created many, many decades ago, in the time of Led Zeppelin, in the time of The Doors. It was long before that. It was uh, Jerry Lee Lewis marrying his 13-year-old cousin, you know, and that was just like, oh, well, it's fine. And God forbid we have to come on this podcast and talk about the downfall of some of our heroes. I'm sure it will happen because just because we admire what they do for work does not guarantee that they're not working within blind spots of their own because of how special they are. So what's the takeaway here, Duanna? Are we any closer to not having any more R. Kelly's. Well, here's, the takeaway is interesting because what we've been hearing for the last couple of years, I don't, I don't think you could find anybody on the street, no matter how big an R. Kelly fan they maybe were, who would say, oh no, I wish that this hadn't come out or I'm still a big fan and, and whatnot. Like this is one of those cases that is pretty, cut and dried. It's a lot like that magazine cover, the New York magazine cover with uh, 
56 mm-hmm. or so of Bill Cosby's accusers. Yeah. That was a watershed moment in terms of a lot of people kind of going, I, I got to give, like, I just have to go ahead and believe this. But the other thing we've been hearing since Me Too, since this whole thing broke is, oh, so you can't do anything anymore? You can't flirt? You can't talk to anybody? You can't whatever? The idea that on the grassroots level in young kids, in teenagers that were being too heavy-handed in the policing of their behavior, that were being too strict, that kids don't mean anything by it. And I hope, if anything, that this is going, that's why. Because we're being so strict with young people when they're learning kind of the rules of engagement with one another because this kind of laxness exists, because this is a chasm that people fall into. The stricter you are with people who are learning, the harder it will be for them to break those boundaries and treat another person as though they don't matter. My takeaway here is, you know, for the Dream Hamptons and the Toronto Burks who worked on this documentary, who produced it, is it perfect? Of course not. I mean, very few pieces of feature film, documentary, television, scripted or not, are perfect. Like, very few books are perfect. That said, I think what they tried to do is something that nobody else tried to do before them, or at least with that kind of urgency and effort, as evidenced by Jim DeRogatis, who's making his own film now. So my takeaway is, is that there was a group of women, or at least a team led by two women, Dream Hampton and Tarana Burke, who have already been activists in their own right. Dream Hampton, for those of you who don't know, has been very involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. Tarana Burke obviously founded the Me Too movement. Sometimes with the, this kind of work, to take it back to show your work, with this kind of work, you do it, it's imperfect, you may not have all the elements in play, you may have the door shut against you, but if the urgency is there, you make what you can make. Yeah, absolutely. You make what you can make. And then you go back, if there are places where you can fix, which perhaps they're listening to feedback now, perhaps they read the Angelica Bastien article, perhaps they took that feedback, then you go back and you correct and you adjust and you fix it. But for now, what they have made is of value in and of itself. Absolutely. And I'm reminded of that idiom, perfect is the enemy of good. If you try and try and try to make it perfect, to make something all things to all people, it will not be good. You will lose yourself in the process. That's true for almost any uh, endeavor, creative or not, artistic or truth-telling or not. Um, And I think that it's a, it's a weird thing to even demand, oh, that this is perfect. It's something we talk about in entertainment, and this is not entertainment as much as it is news and information. So I'm not sure it even needs to come into the discussion. Uh, the other parting gift that I leave with is that you can, yeah, you can roll your eyes about music cues or particular styles of Lifetime, the network, but when push comes to shove, that was the network who showed up for women who needed them. So that's something I'm okay with as well. So if you haven't already, Surviving R. Kelly on Lifetime, um, read the links that um, we'll include with the show notes that 
helped me, that helped you, Duanna, um, further engage us. Again, as we said, we're still learning and trying to process as well. I don't think you or I would say that we have all the answers. I mean, a lot of this for me personally, I've, you know, relied on the leadership of other people to process and to break down and analyze, you know, in a deeper, deeper way, in a profound way, what the situation is. And I think that's the goal is like, keep reading about it. Keep hearing from different people and their points of view. They may not be your point of view, but this conversation is so complicated that I think that if we just take one target, obviously the the one point of view that isn't like is unimpeachable is R. Kelly sucks, <laughs> like there. But in terms of how we get beyond this, what we do beyond this, all the layers and layers of what led to this, like it is so tangled. It's going to take a long time to untangle, but the way to do it is to keep reading and learning and watching. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, there is no easy turn out of this conversation. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. Okay, we're back. And we are back with an article I pitched you and I was really bratty about it. I was like, hi, I really want to talk about this on the podcast and let me know right away because if you don't want to talk about it, I want to write about it. So I need to know and I have to write about it tomorrow. Actually, (laughs) uh, I should say that you led, uh, the title is podcast. This is so great. Five O's. Uh, the first line of the email is, it's so, so great, at which point you've upgraded to six O's each in each so. Uh, then you say our next episode is going to be three hours. Read this soon and let me know because if not, and then the last line is, but it's so great. And you did go back to five O's, so maybe your enthusiasm was waning. <laughs> right. So this is the joint interview in Variety with Chris Pine and Patty Jenkins. And they are promoting a series on TNT called I Am The Night, which they co-produced. Patty Jenkins directed the first two episodes, Chris Pine stars. It's loosely based on a true life situation. Um, And I, there was so much interesting work in here. Um, So much interesting work about Patty Jenkins, her career, the collaboration between director and, I don't know if you could call it Muse? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the between her, yes, her collaborator who is now an inspiration, right, to yeah. create things for. Uh, I paused there because uh, the when you say Muse, uh, I am the night is also partially based on a real life friend yes. of Patty Jenkins, uh, and that role is played by India Isley. But yeah, they are now at the point where they're developing. What looks like it could be a a real long-time partnership. Uh, and the article finds them at a really curious moment. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't know if I want to start there, but when I said director Muse, typically in Hollywood, 
the director muse relationship I know is male director female star or sometimes it's Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro or Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio I don't know that we can point to a lot of examples where it is a woman directing and an actor male who is the quote muse and this is why I, one of the reasons why I was like, oh, Joanna, so great. So great. Right. And I think what's interesting about it, because I think what you can point to uh, that we haven't talked about is I think there are lots of cases of female directors and female muses. I think Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan are developing that kind of relationship. I think Shonda Rhimes has been very open that Sandra Oh became the physical embodiment of her muse, that Christina Yang was a fictional muse and Sandra Oh became that. But you rarely see this. Chris Pine is 30-some-odd. Somewhere Kathleen is screaming on the streetcar. Take it easy, Kathleen. Uh, He's 30-some-odd. And Patty Jenkins is somewhat older than that. I think she's in her 40s. Sure. Um, Yeah, this is not a situation that you see often, especially when this is patently not a romantic relationship or something that threatens to become a romantic relationship. No. And the reason that I obnoxiously grunted over your director and muse Mm -hmm. image is because that's what we're always being sold. Yeah. Right? That the director, you know who I'm talking about. Uh I'm holding my tongue sort of for impartiality. We won't mention him. Not that we vote for the Academy Awards or anything, so there's nothing that I could influence. But just in case, uh, the idea that this director molds somebody from clay into their own Tinkerbell star. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of it too, right? Often there's that image of, oh, I, the director, found this person and I gave them flight. Mm -hmm. Chris Pine is an established actor already. Actor? Do we call him an actor or was he a movie star up to now? Movie star light. What do you mean? I'm I'm actually going to dig in. What do you yeah. mean movie star light? Like I would say that sure, because he's fronted um, a, like the Star Trek franchise and uh, like, isn't that his biggest shit? Like, and they were moderately successful. But do I think that Chris Pine before Wonder Woman was a household name? Sure he was. I, sure. I don't think so. Sure he was. I mean, Chris Pine can open a movie, right? That's kind of how they quantify it. It's, is this person a big enough name to be a, yeah, be the head of a movie on their own? Mm, okay. I mean, this is not where we want to be spending our time, but prior to Wonder Woman and there were lots of Chris's around, I wouldn't say he was ranked like first or second Chris. He was probably for Chris, like Chris number four. I mean, look. Behind Pratt, Evans, uh, interchangeably, like Evans, Pratt, Hemsworth. Fine, but I don't give a shit about any of the Chris's until now. Um, But I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. All the Chris's were movie stars, not actors. And my distinction there is they're pretty and they can have a role in a franchise and open a movie and be, uh, you know, in a franchise, but you're not 
asking anything challenging of them as a performer? Not yet. They haven't shown, those three um, haven't shown yet uh, that kind of potential. And Pine, yes, in the last 18 Aren't there months. five? Oh, probably. There's Chris Hemsworth, Chris Pratt, Chris Evans, Chris, pa- oh, and Bradley Cooper is the, <laughs> yes. is the fifth Chris. That's yeah. right. Um, <laughs> I got to be honest. I have to be honest. I love your reaction. <laughs> oh, I wish I could live in this, but that's not my joke. Um, I worked with somebody a few years ago who, uh, who talked about the five Chris's and delivered it just that way. I'm glad you're crediting the person, but I heard it for the first time and that was really good. And I hope everybody else enjoyed it as much as I did. Okay. Wow. That was, all right. So you've just listed the four Chris's and Bradley Cooper. That's right. Um, but can we go back to Patty Jenkins for a second? Well, but I just, yes, of course we can. But I guess my point is, to me, that was the framework of this article. This is the conversation in which Chris Pine goes from being a movie star or a movie star light, as you say, to being an actor. Thanks to? Thanks to Patty Jenkins. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the, I guess the other side of that sentence being... Because you wouldn't continue to work with somebody just because they're a movie star. There are millions of movie stars. Mm -hmm. But if you want to continue to have a relationship with somebody, especially if you as the director who can work with all kinds of pretty people, you want to work with somebody who can do some things, who can make some choices. And she's introducing him to us. But what's amazing about her is that she's shown us that she has a pattern for this. Like… Wonder Woman was her second film. Uh-huh. Her first feature film was a film called Monster. Yeah. Starring Charlize, Charlize Theron, for which Charlize won an Oscar. Right. Prior to that film, I'm not sure that we were seeing Charlize in full Charlize potential. I mean, no. I think people thought she was talented, but no, she was a, we talked about this a bit uh, after the Golden Globes, she was a rom-com girl or a heartbroken, uh, you know, my lover has an affliction girl. She, yeah. No, she wasn't. Are you talking about Sweet November? Yes, I think so. But I just, all I knew is that there were orange leaves <laughs> yeah. on the front. Yeah. Uh, no, she wasn't. This was, that was the film that showed us that she had Layers upon layers. And look, everybody, it's not just about, quote, getting ugly for Oscar, although sure, like, she changed her appearance, but, like, if it was that easy, then I could have an Oscar. But it's about getting emotionally ugly for Oscar. That is what the key is. Showing a side of yourself that is unlikable is horrendous. Um, The case in point there, and God, we're going all kinds of places, is uh, Nicole Kidman in To Die For is that was the first movie where she got noticed. And she's pretty and beautiful through that whole movie. Oh, but she is. She was brutal and scary and ugly. And that was where people first sat up and took notice. I will watch that movie, like, for her performance over and over again. Anytime. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for Reese Witherspoon, it was election, right? Like, that hard-assedness was, 
oh, she can be yeah. something else. And actors wait a long time for those roles. Yes. So if somebody says to you, hey, this was kind of, we kind of had a thing. We had a vibe. We're working together well. Let's do something again. Mm -hmm. If you have any kind of enthusiasm for that person, which of course you would because you wouldn't have that vibe to begin with otherwise, then yeah, you're going to go wherever the hell they lead to do something that is different and more interesting than what you've done before. What do you think of the fact that there were so many years between Monster and Wonder Woman for Patty Jenkins directing a feature film? She directed episodes of TV for sure, and she worked. It's not like she wasn't working, but in terms of feature film, what do you think of that? I think a lot of things. I think that, first of all, in Hollywood, it is very possible to make a living working on things that we never see. Mm -hmm. It's more common for writers and in some cases actors, but for directors too, to work for a year on scouting something and developing something and working out the plans. And then your lead actor uh, gets sick or has a conflict and the whole movie falls apart. Happens all the time. Uh, which is to say Patty Jenkins could have been working on projects that never saw the light of day. Uh, that she might have been developing projects or trying to become, you know, the word we use often is an auteur, uh, developing her skills that never saw the light of day. That said, do I think that if she was the, you know, the studio favorite, that she would have helmed bigger movies sooner after Monster? Yeah, absolutely. I think she was probably seen as an also-ran. It was probably seen as a one-off. And yeah, there are Monsters 2003. So there were 14 years between the release of Monster and the release of Wonder Woman. Yeah. And no other features in that time. But interestingly, mm -hmm. she signed on to direct Thor 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what happened was the news was confirmed and then she ended up leaving the project due to creative differences. Uh-huh. Now in 2017, she explained a little bit why, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll give you the quote. Okay. Please. I pitched them that I wanted to do Romeo and Juliet. I wanted Jane to be stuck on earth and Thor to be stuck where he is and Thor to be forbidden to come and save Jane because earth doesn't matter. And then by coming to save her, they end up discovering that Malekith is hiding the dark energy inside Earth because he knows that Odin doesn't care about Earth, and so he's using Odin's disinterest in Earth to trick him. And so it was like, I wanted it to be a grand movie based on Romeo and Juliet, a war between the gods and the Earthlings, and Thor saves the day and ends up saving Earth. And she was heartbroken that that vision was not, you know, taken. Mm -hmm. So... You don't direct a movie for years and years after Monster. Then you get a Marvel movie. And you get Thor. Mm -hmm. Thor working, 2. Thor 2. Working with another Chris. Right. When, and I'm going to come back there. That's why I made yep. that distinction. And, um, you know, she pitches the idea. They weren't into it. And she was like, okay, well, then I got to go. I'm not going to make the movie that you want to make. Right. I want to make the movie that I want to make. And she leaves. And then, lo and behold... She lands Wonder Woman, and look what it did. Well, let's talk about that choice to leave for a second. Yeah. Because that's a tough call. Yeah. 
And I don't think it is one that I would make in the moment, but I think it's the right call. And here's why. Because I've been in these meetings where people say, well, what's your take? Mm -hmm. And you say, this is my take. I want to do this and that. And it has to be something that you really believe in, that is uniquely yours, and that isn't just the story itself on paper. Yeah. And two things are going to happen. Either they're going to go, oh my God, yes, that, and they hire you and you make that thing and you work through it, or they say, oh, we kind of saw it a different way. And if she doesn't walk in that moment when they say, we kind of saw it a different way, then every single production problem that comes up, Mm -hmm. and there will be dozens because there are, this doesn't look right, this actor is weird, this, this, they will say among themselves, well, she never really got it. She didn't really understand it to begin with. So you never want to have people doing anything other than an enthusiastic cheer for your idea. Yep. uh, Because it's not going to work out because the inevitable bumps will look like they are mistakes or problems on your fault as opposed to being what they are, which is inevitable bumps. But it's hard. Like I'm reading this and I'm remembering this. I mean, Sarah covered this extensively on the blog at the time. And I'm thinking back, and now that, like, we're talking about it in this context, I don't know if I could have walked away. You know what I mean? Like… At you, that time. At that time when Marvel is huge, when you potentially get to be the first female director of a Marvel project, and you haven't done a feature film since Monster, and you get this, that… I mean, God, that would be, to me, I don't know. Even today, after learning her example, if that happened to me tomorrow, I still don't know if I could walk. But here's, I'm going to help you. Ready? Because here's why. And again, I don't know if I would have thought of this in the moment, but here's why you would and why it was a good idea for her to do so. Of course it was. I just don't know if I could do it. But I guess what I'm saying is the other side of that, of, oh, I'm going to be the first woman to helm a Marvel movie, blah, blah, blah. The other side of that is, Oh, that's the woman who ruined the Thor franchise. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't be hired again. Right. Like, let's just say, let's play out what we're both thinking. Let's say that she wasn't up for a huge number of exciting jobs up to that point, up to Thor 2, right? So maybe this is a big break for her to get Thor 2. But if it's anything other than an enthusiastic yes for her vision then she's going to become not just, oh, you haven't worked in a while. It's going to be, you've ruined Thor. You've ruined that franchise. And we know how fanboys are, both inside and outside the system. It wouldn't just be she hasn't worked in a while. It would have been a stink that would have been impossible to evade. I guarantee you that's what was in her mind, that the negative benefit of doing it and coming up short is worse than any positive benefit that might come could be. So then what happens is the positive benefit that does come, mm-hmm. as she says, is that, well, she got Wonder Woman. Right. Which, if you correct me if I'm wrong, um, which was also kind of underestimated before it came out, right? People yeah. did not have high expectations. Well, people were worried, number one, because – you know, they were worried about Warner Brothers and how Warner Brothers had marketed these superhero movies before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were different reasons that weren't necessarily, like, directly attributed to her. Um, the movies that had come out about 
like the Batmans and the Supermans before that. Yeah, were, nobody likes them. And yeah. Marvel was the fucking leader yeah, in sure, having reinvented whatever. this model. But nobody was excited about this movie. No. And then she, it comes out, it does all kinds of like, I think, what, 800 and some change million dollars. It's amazing. People love it. Um, and, you know, she talks about, she and Chris Pine talk in this interview about their collaboration and how she firmly stayed true to her vision, mm-hmm. which is, um, this movie is about Wonder Woman. That's right. And not about you. And that was very clear on the screen, right? Like yes. even uh, – it was – the fact that he was eye candy was a joke that was inside the movie is the point. Sure. And I think that that comes – we're coming back to our, you know, your favorite your favorite phrase, director muse <laughs> yeah. um, thing because he's quite – um, he's quite candid in this interview about saying that he had to fight his ego, that coming into this situation and being conditioned by Hollywood as to what men typically are in these kinds of movies, he was like, hey, what about me? Um, and he says, like, I had to, you know, the eight-year-old me was there being like, where's my piece? And where's, right, And she was like, you know, whatever skills that she had, she used them to not only like tell him to sit down, but to, but to get him to come around to the idea of, hey, this story is going to be so great because it's not about you. And in the end, you're going to benefit from it so much. And I think that is what I wish we could apply, um, to every industry and to so many other fields where we could just tweak that perspective. But here's the thing, Elaine, you're putting me in the position of having to praise a man for doing what a woman does all the time, but we wouldn't be here having this conversation if he wasn't really, uh, if he wasn't really clear about how that changed his perspective and how he changed. Uh, and the the piece is full of it. And that's why they're doing this, having this conversation together. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to praise him no. for being a normal person. But, you know, he talks, I, there's a great quote where he says, I'd have 30-minute conversations with Patty. I'd look at her and she was wonderfully patient. I'd realize it had absolutely nothing to do with me. And she kind of laughs. And she's like, it didn't have nothing to do with you, i.e., yes, it did. Yeah. Um, but later on, he talks about how the reason maybe that he was able to get to that place is because he was looking for more things to do, that he wanted to do things that were more interesting and be challenged more than, you know, reading not very far between the lines than what's asked of a pretty person. And... He says, I've never been Thor, never will be. I think any actor would say this, that the complexity and the shadow is as vital and important to... And then the article says, Jenkins cuts him off. Uh, And I love that before I even go further because that's the relationship is that this relatively youngish director is cutting off the big movie star as he's saying something profound. She's like, "Uh, yeah, no. Uh, (laughs) But she cuts him off and says, they don't all feel like that. They super don't. That's why Chris is so great. They super don't. Meaning 
most of the actors mm-hmm. that are walking around this piece unnamed don't feel like they're looking for depth and, you know, texture and whatever in a project. They say that, but most of them are like, yeah, when's my part? Yeah. How when's many it my line? Yes. yes. Well, and that's why, you know, to your point that we don't want to be complimenting him for doing something normal. I think what she's trying to say is it's not that normal. Like, that's right. For somebody to come around to the idea, he readily admits, I had an ego. It was a little bit, hey, what about me? And then because he was working with her and seeing her vision, he was able to come around to the idea of, hey, I'm here in service of a really great story. So as long as I get to be part of this story, any part of the story, it's going to be a good thing. And what's not normal about it and probably maybe why we should compliment him or at least give him some shine for it is because if more of this kind of complimenting went on, perhaps it models it for other people. And I think that that is, look, when the movie came out in 2017, Sarah had written about it about like, oh, hey, look at how well-written and well-rounded the um, male love interest in a female superhero movie is. Why can't they do that in, like, the opposite, right? Um, And, you know, she also said, and a lot of people were complimenting Chris Pine for this, is kudos to him for, you know, being Captain Kirk and then coming on to this project and taking this role where it is quite clear it's not about him. And where that took him in his career is he's never been hotter. Well, and I really like that because, you know, when you say, oh, it's not that unusual or it is, I go, this is a basically emotionally in tune individual, right? It's okay. I came in with an ego. Then I had an experience. I paid attention and I changed. That's a basic story of somebody growing because of an experience. Everybody loves that guy. I love that guy who's like, yeah, I change and evolve. That's living life, right? That same guy could have just kept taking the Captain Kirk scripts, but obviously he wanted something else. And so the thing is like, well, if you want something else, you have to do something else. You have Mm -hmm. to change something. And maybe that means, yeah, taking a role that looks thankless or becoming the damsel in distress uh, in a situation where you've already been a leading man that to me backs up his statement. She says, oh, they're not all like that. They super aren't. That's why Chris is so great. But to me, you know, he was already halfway there to being that guy in her estimation by taking that role. This is not, you know, if Chris Pine hadn't taken this role, it would have gone to some 26-year-old upstart who it was his first role and then he, you know, has a three-picture deal at Sony later on. Um, so this is, it already speaks to a guy who, whether he had an ego or not, was playing with what would happen if you, if you don't keep it in check. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of the elephant in the room, which is he's doing all this, putting himself in the arms of a woman, which we know a lot of fucking dudes would have a problem with. Sorry, just saying it. We know this. Yeah. Right? It's a woman directing a superhero movie uh, and hasn't just come off of a bigger superhero movie. It's, he's already a bit more flexible than some brosifs that I could name. But he's also doing it in the trade publication, 
which is what I love. You know, he's not doing it in GQ where he's on the cover. He's doing it in Variety. The head photo is of them walking down the street and her arm is looped into his. And then they have this interview where she cuts him off. She laughs when he says, I was a brat and I was making it all about me. She tries to placate him. She defends him. And then he talks about how because of their partnership, this role that he's taking in the TNT series, I Am the Knight, is also um, not secondary, but also supporting a woman's story. It's her journey, right? This woman who's trying to find out her identity, and in tandem, his character is, is trying to find his identity or going for his last shot. Like, this is not billed as the Chris Pine movie where all the other characters help Chris Pine fulfill Chris Pine's dreams. If at best here, it's like a two-hander. Is that what you call it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. At, it's a, it's, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the driving force, the A plot here is the woman who, you know, discovers that there's something amiss with the things that she knew or thought she knew about who she was. And she goes about trying to discover the secrets of her childhood. That's right. Um, and that, yes, he is an integral part of that and a, you know, a key there. But no, it's not his story. No. It is, and again, that means he's getting something out of being there, mm-hmm. right? Like a, the usual caveat supply. Chris Pine's not doing this for the paycheck. Uh, this is not where he's making his big money. Uh, they're all getting their money from Wonder Woman 2, which I'm sure is going to be great, but, you know, that's not what that is. This is an opportunity to work with her again. And uh, there's no greater situation. I've been on both sides of the coin where there are creative decisions coming into play about who are we going to choose? How are we going to assemble the team? And I've been on both sides where you say, well, I want to be on whatever you're making because I want to work with you again. And people who have said that to me. I'll come do that with you because yeah. I want to work with you. And you go, yeah, because we have that team thing. Mm-hmm. You're getting something and you know that the work that you go through and the days and the problems that we talked about, uh, the intrinsic problems with every production, are going to add up to something different than they were if you were in whatever other script yeah. came across his desk and whatever other actor came across hers. You know, I… I was thinking a lot about this after I read it last week and thinking about how, you know, we can all relate it to certain parts of our work. And um, I was thinking about my, one of my jobs on the social talk show Mm -hmm. that we do here in Canada and there's four hosts. Mm -hmm. So we, we regularly, you know, do interviews with special guests. Right. And uh, we, we like to map out like the order of questions, like in the interview, if we're sort of trying to get to a story, right? Like you just don't throw out questions willy-nilly. Like you structure an interview where you start here, you hope to get here, you want to end here. Right, of course. And sometimes there are more spectacular questions than others, or at least questions that will lead to the most, what you hope is the more spectacular answer. Right. Well, you're getting to like the money question or answer, right? Like let's say it's a celebrity. Like we all want to ask the question about like to the celebrity that will deliver the most spectacular answer, the most, 
you know, eye-opening answer. Tell me about when you worked with XYZ. Tell me about when you were married to XYZ. Tell me when you went here. I get it. And also I want to say, because you want to, because there's a little magic in that moment. Yeah. Because you lean in, you make eye contact with that person. That's right. And you say the thing as though everybody doesn't know, but we all pretend that you hadn't rehearsed it, that you Mm -hmm. just thought from your brain, tell me about this thing. That's right. And they look back at you and go, wow. And then they answer with a beautiful answer. Now, like, not to sound Pollyanna, but the the thing is, is that the inclination is, is that you want to ask that question, right? Like, you want to drop that mic. Because you think, or in that moment, if perhaps you don't have this revelation, this thing that we're exploring here with Chris Pine and, and, and uh, Patty Jenkins, that that is going to be the moment and you'll be remembered in it. But what people remember is the overall interview. That's right. They don't remember the individual elements of who asked the question, especially in a format like that. And so to go back to the Pollyanna, we are all really, really fair about who's asking the questions, who we think is best to tee it up. Um, I might be better suited to ask a certain question because of the snarkiness in my voice. Somebody else might be more suited because they're more sensitive and they can sort of draw the person in. And it's a really egalitarian way of working where in the end, if it all goes well and you share in that way, what ends up is just a great interview, not Lainey asked the best question and got this answer. But there is, there are people in my business, in our business, who want that. You know what I mean? And it is hard to relinquish at times. Well, but here's why. And this is kind of what the deal is with the, with the Chris Pine and Patty Jenkins thing. Uh, I'm sure there's a, there's a, it's like junk food a little bit. If you ask the question, if you're the one, that's a real quick hit. You get that win, right? The, everybody asks the thing and you ask the thing about like whatever the follow-up is or the question they're tired of being asked and it floats all boats. That's a longer term goal, right? Which is, hey, I'm going to make us all look good Mm -hmm. and we're all going to get better ratings this week and that's going to float all boats. Yeah. As opposed to the instant gratification of, oh, Bradley Cooper smiled at me. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's, it's a trade-off, right? One for another. Chris Pine is clearly one of those people. And for that matter, Patty Jenkins is one of those people where the quick hit is not that satisfying. No. You know, she talks about how after Monster, she was like, well, now I can't just do anything. Like, I can't just choose any project. Everything has to be kind of meaningful. Yeah. And she could have, like, you know, after making Charlize Theron uh, an Oscar winner, I'm sure that she was getting offers for every, you know, every biopic, every sort of make this fledgling actress into a person, every whatever, for a while. She didn't want to do those things because they're a quicker hit on some level, than doing the things that really matter. He clearly shares the same philosophy, and that's why they work so well together. But you know what, Duanna? I have to say that there may be people out there who are bigger than me who will say, I knew that at the very beginning. But you kind of have to taste it. The lack of lasting satisfaction that comes with being… With the instant hit. That's right. Yeah. 
before you're ready to appreciate like the longer term satisfaction that comes with a collective effort. And look, that's real specific to people in our business, which isn't to say it doesn't apply to other businesses, but there are people who are better at being lone wolves. Mm -hmm. If you're a novelist, you're a lone wolf necessarily, right? You still work with people who support you and editors and and all the rest of it, but that's your show, you know? If you are a, I don't know, a soloist, if you're Celine Dion, right? Um, (laughs) Then like… I really like the tone of voice you use there. If you're Celine Dion. Like go and be your solo fucking self because that's as good as you can be. Mm -hmm. But there are others of us and you and I have talked about it a lot both in regards to ourselves and other people where… Yeah, the ensemble is better than the individual. It doesn't mean you don't get to be an individual. It doesn't mean you don't get those moments that are yours or that people don't appreciate you for being yourself. Yeah. But you realize, oh, we can build something bigger together than just the two of us. You're right. It's Pollyanna and uh, cliches all over the place, right? Because it's, oh, the the whole is more than the sum of its parts or… A rising tide floats all boats or those kinds of things. But it's a specific kind of of drug. And people get it wherever they get it. Whether you were in the chorus of the musical and you, like, you know, embraced the lead at the end because you both did the thing or whether it was whatever team effort, soccer people and somebody assists the goal or not. Um, soccer people is what I just said. <laughs> I think there are people who are work extroverts, if you will, who are genuinely happier when the whole team is working together. And it also backs you up on days when you're not feeling it. On days when you don't have it to give, Mm -hmm. you know, your Patty Jenkins is going to be there to be like, I gotcha. I know what's going on. We'll get it back tomorrow. Um, That kind of thing. You don't have that person to pick you up when you are a solo act all the time. I said that it wasn't a romance, but it is a work romance in the most traditional sense because that's what a work romance really is. Wow, I am in love with what you and I can do together. Yeah. That's a really exciting place to be. Or just a romance or a relationship as you just described it where today's a shitty day for me or you and I will pick you up. Yeah. Or let me just tell you right now that I'm going to have to take the lead today. Mm Mm-hmm. And tomorrow you can take the lead. Because yeah, I because there's going to be, that's the thing though, when you work with somebody this way, there's going to be a tomorrow and a tomorrow mm-hmm. and a tomorrow. Um, and there are situations in which I get to shine when you yeah. do, when whatever. You know, I would argue that Chris Pine is the supporting character to Patty Jenkins in this piece, right? Yes. In this variety piece. 100%. But it makes him look great. It does make, this is the illustration of his philosophy, but of I, our philosophy. I wonder, too, if this is a metaphor for, like, a modern relationship, even with marriage. We've been talking about, or, like, socially at least, for the last few years, um, women who have higher-paying jobs or at least who have more career opportunity in a certain area, and men are increasingly, um, like, being more imaginative in their domestic roles. And… This is the thing. Like, everybody wins. Everybody wins, but just not everybody wins all at the same time. And I'm sure that people, to listeners who are in 
uh, same-sex marriages or relationships would tell us when it's not about, you know, sort of gender perceptions or whatnot. It's still about now is my time, now is your time. And the more you get used to sharing that, it's almost the more often your time comes up again, right? Like it cycles around pretty fast. It's just that to go back to what we talked about a little while ago about modeling behavior and the kinds of praise or the kinds of actions and decisions that merit the praise, which is what we're doing with Chris Pine now, Mm -hmm. this is it, right? Not just in work life, but in home life. That's right. Redefining, yeah, redefining these kinds of relationships and the balance between them. Right. Who you are behind the camera in all the senses, whether you are an actor or banker or like stay-at-home parent. Yeah. So… Uh, like, really, when you read this, and do read it, um, if you haven't already, I'm sure Chris Pine is their number one Chris people, will have read it already three times. But, you know, comb through and see not only what you recognize about yourself or whatnot, but who this person could be in your work life. Um, you know, in your in your married life, sure, or partner life, if it's something that you're looking for, but, you know, often you've made that choice. But having this person in your work life, male, female, a group of people, whatever, is so invaluable because when you kind of trust and you're not always trying to struggle to be the one who's the star, you will be amazed at what you can accomplish and how warm the light is on you when you're not focused on eking yourself into that same light. There you go, everybody. For those of you who are Pine Number One advocates, I'm pretty sure that for this episode, we agree with you. I mean, I've never had a Chris ranking nor cared, but <laughs> he he might be edging out to like being the Chris on the radar. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, which I have to say, probably one of our most challenging ones, at least at the beginning. Certainly daunting to start with. Yeah. um, But a pleasure to go through with you and also with you guys listening because the emails you send and the thoughts you have are always so thoughtful and curious and probing. They're really, really gratifying to read. So uh, that helps to... Yeah, to challenge us to try stuff. So we always learn from you. Please continue to send us your notes and your thoughts about this episode. Um, We'd love to hear what you think, whether or not you agree or disagree. We want to learn, and this is what we're here for. Keep sending us your notes also about work, about Chris Pine if you have to, if you want to. I'm sure we'll hear from Kathleen. We can touch in on some feedback pretty soon because we're getting some great emails that I think would be good to uh, air, uh, some from last week about Emily Blunt and Bill Hader. And I'm sure from this week you'll have things as well. And we want to know about the things we didn't talk about that you want to have more airtime and we'll endeavor to do that. So until next time, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Work hard, send us your notes, and we'll be back next week. Bye. Show your work. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.